0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Book Leads, Impactful Books for Life and Leadership. I'm your series host and leadership performance coach, John Jaramillo. This podcast series is about getting to the books that have impacted the lives of people on my network, colleagues, old and new, friends, so many great leads that I'll be interviewing to get to the cusp of those books, the value behind those books. I want to see which book it is that's contributed the most to who they are as a person, how they do business, how they live their life. I cover three types of books, categories of books, books that they're sharing with me that I haven't read myself, books that we've both read, whether for the specifically for the series or not. And then when I'm interviewing authors and authors about the books they're putting out there into the market, and I want to learn more about the message that they're sharing and get that out there. So for today, I am going to have an author, and my guest today is Hesha Abrams. And Hesha is an internationally acclaimed master attorney mediator with a unique talent to manage big egos and strong personalities and a keen ability to create synergy amongst the most diverse personality types, driving them towards agreement. By holding the calm, she uses innovative approaches to deal making, specializing in crafting solutions for complex and difficult matters. During her 30-plus-year career, Hesha has resolved thousands of cases, both large and small, in every conceivable area, creating settlements worth billions of dollars, saving clients billions more, including a dispute over the secret recipe for Pepsi. Holding the Calm is her insightful, practical, and easy-to-use toolkit forged in the trenches of resolving human conflict. And secrets, its secrets will enable you to know how to approach every situation to prevent explosions disarm conflicts and reduce drama holding the calm is Hesha's contribution to help make our world businesses and relationships less acrimonious and more harmonious and i I had met Hesha through art networks we had a conversation going back and forth uh back and forth about her book and my series and I wanted I, I think this is a very timely conversation Um, just with everything going on in the world, I've realized just how much we're not good at storytelling and that plays into conversations that plays into communication. So I'm, I'm so grateful to have Hesha here. So Hesha, thank you for joining me.
1: Mm, My pleasure. What a good thing you're doing. Getting people to read. How great is that? All knowledge.
0: Trying, trying, you know, and, and I think it comes, the biggest thing I find with books is the books are amazing. But just people vouching for those books, whether they're an author or not, whether they're an author like, author like yourself, just kind of, I like hearing the tone from the author. What is it that you put into this book? Why did you put that in there to give it a little bit more urgency? But yeah, you're you're exactly right. Conversations, storytelling, book writing, getting those messages out there.
1: All of it. It's always the question of whether the the juice, of the, the lemon
0: is worth the squeeze. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when have I, you had? Have you had those books that you've bought uh, them and then been like,
1: Ugh. I read a book and it's like, okay, guys, this was an article, and you just try to make it into a book so you could get tenure or something like that. Wasted
0: it,
1: it yeah. <laughs> my time, you know. Like, time is very valuable, and I read a lot and I can skim, and that's one of the things I did with my book is that I, I've made ten thousand speeches in my life, and I'm not exaggerating. And people are always saying, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. Who had time to write a book? I was actually doing the work, you know, and two years ago, I had a hysterectomy and, you know, knock on wood, all is fine. And I was grounded for six weeks. And I said, you know, I'm going to write my book. And it poured out of me. And what was interesting is I had a number of publishers that were the academic presses say, this is great, but reject it because it wasn't fancy enough, Mm. academic enough. And I said, oh, for God's sakes. People need to know what to do right now without getting a master's degree or taking some master's class or taking some fancy whatever. What can I do right now to make my life a little easier and deal with my idiot brother-in-law or my stupid boss or my horrible neighbor or my kid's teacher? You know, it takes a thousand people to build a building and one idiot with a stick of dynamite knocks the whole thing down. So, how can you be preventative and that's literally why i wrote this and i insisted it be a little cheap paperback so it was easy and it could be digested quick and when you get out of it you go all right i'm going to do some of that stuff make your life a little easier
0: yeah it's practical like a little manual um not like these like not like when you order a book without looking at the number of pages that it takes up and then you get it and it's like a tome it's like You know, five Bibles put together. I like when authors can kind of just collapse all their information into something that's digestible. No quality is lost because they're hitting you with like the nuggets that are like uh, the high value pieces of information and experience. But Hesha, before we jump into the book, who are you today? Can you provide a little insight into the work that you're doing today just so we can kind of start getting to know you before we jump into the book?
1: Oh, sure. I'm an attorney mediator. And uh, I joke that I'm, a, I'm like an, a, an attorney who reformed you know, because I used to be a litigator. And you know, there's a big joke that one lawyer in a town starves to death and two make a very good living. And it's good though, what I also tell people, especially when I get into a big case and people are fussing and fighting is that in many parts of the world, you know, they resolve conflict by, I'm gonna burn down your store or I'm gonna kidnap your kid. Or, I'm gonna break your legs that's not just in the movies that's in like what half the world, maybe a third of the world for sure. And so in civilized countries, we resolve conflict with words and we have court systems and we have arbitration and mediation systems. It's eminently civilized. Mm -hmm. And I am honored to be part of that system. And my practice is international. I've mediated all over the world and I don't care your ethnicity, your race, your gender, your socioeconomic class, we are all really the same when it comes to conflict. We wanna win, we don't wanna feel stupid, and we don't wanna lose. It's really as simple as that. And I, this is what I do. I mean, I do for the big behemoths, the Googles and the FaceTimes and the uh, Facebooks and the you know, Yahoo and, and uh, IBMs and Verizons and the big guys. And then I tell you, doing a small case where whose cat peed on the rug, it's just as hard. <laughs> done, churches fighting amongst themselves, communities, giant communities fighting over. Did a case where teaching Bible in the public schools and it was ripping this community apart. So I thought, I have had this laboratory of human conflict. I know stuff that works, not what should work or what you want to work or a lovely win win theory of working, but what actually works when the other person is. Hateful and vile and disgusting, and you're at loggerheads. What actually works to move that thing forward? So and what that's made what I you did in this this little thing?
0: What made you jump from litigator to mediator?
1: I back in the day, I've been doing this a long time, 35 years. I had a kid. And now being a working high end professional with a child is hard. Back then, as a woman, it was impossible. It was really challenging. And I loved what doing what I did, but I, I, I felt like I was, it, it was challenging the motherhood stuff, and I was challenging the litigator stuff. And I found out about mediation, and I went, "Wait, wait, wait a minute. You talk to people for a living and you solve problems. <laughs> okay, this is awesome." And in the beginning, I did everything wrong. You know I told people what I thought, mm-hmm. I educated them, I gave them information. You know, and you still can settle probably half the cases if you do that. And then I learned over time, nobody is a big joke that women always talk about how men mansplain to them and they don't like it. Men don't like it either when they get it from women. No one likes to be told what to do or that they're wrong or you're stupid. Let me educate you. And let me tell you what the facts are because clearly you don't know. That never, ever, ever works. And that's, what people do, which is just ridiculous. So I had to develop new tech, new tricks, new tools. I've read every neuroscience book I can get my hands on. I've watched TED Talks and lectures and how do human beings tick? And just one quick example I like to give people, and this is proven with neuroscience across every age, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic, gender, all of it, you know, apples. -hmm. 25 cents each. How many would you buy? I don't know. I like apples. I buy two apples, four for a dollar. You get a 35% boost in sales. Now you want an extra 10% boost in sales? Limit two. That's just dumb.
0: Mm. It
1: makes no logical sense whatsoever. And it works with everybody. (laughs) The question when you're doing conflict resolution is, I can't talk to you the way I talk. I can't resolve the problem the way I want it resolved. I have to actually see you. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I should speak to you differently, shouldn't I? Are you a data person or a feeling relationship person? I should speak to you differently. We don't take the time to speak into the ears that are hearing us, which is chapter one in the book changes everything and it's such a simple thing changes everything
0: yeah i should understand a little bit about you what did your what did your career path um or when you were in your education early education how did your career path start what did you go into how did you start off on that path was it family was it you know just randomness didn't know what to do at first what did your career path whether it was education or not what did that begin what did that look like in the beginning
1: well, I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family. Um, so it wasn't good. And so I knew that it's not what I wanted. And I was always told I talked too much. And um, so, you know, I should be a lawyer. And I was sure. actually told, you know, it was ridiculous and horrible as that is, is that I was too smart and no man would ever want me. And so think about the sickness and twistedness of those kind of messages that didn't just come in me. I know plenty of women that that misogyny gets inbred. And so I knew that I had to be smart and I had to make a name for myself and do something. And I like reading, I like thinking. So law school was sort of an easy thing for me. And uh, when, I, when I was in law school, I wanted to be justice. So I thought I would do criminal law till I realized I'd be representing criminals all the time, which was not what I wanted to do. And then I thought, ah, environmental law, I'm gonna do this for the underdog. And I graduated at the top of my class. So I was recruited by an environmental law firm. And I was so dumb. I didn't even know how to research or to look at it. And they represented the bad guys. They were on the wrong side. So I was like, okay, this is not what I want to do. And I did a lot of fuffering and, you know, bumping around until I got into business litigation, which I really liked and enjoyable. And then, as I said, got into mediation. And now, I mean, like I said, I've done. Every possible case from breast implants and wrongful death to billion dollar corporate behemoths, uh, you know, going to town over several billion dollars, giant pharmaceutical companies. I mean, the bigger the cases are, the more interesting and the more fun they are, because you have to really move through probably 50 people with the psychological how many apples do you want to buy thing Mm -hmm. and nobody wants to lose Everyone wants to win and no one wants to look stupid. So all that psycho babble stuff is critical in all conflict resolution. And that's the laboratory I've gotten to play with by, uh, you know, what my career has taken me. And now apparently I'm an author and I'm getting to talk to <laughs> cool people like you.
0: <laughs> Actually, my next question is always just based on what you've seen in your life, in your work, how would you define leadership? What does it look like to you um, just in your path to now?
1: That is such a great question because there's so many leadership companies out there that do good stuff, like the Ken Blanchard companies. And Ken wrote the forward to my book. I mean, he's awesome. And what I would really say, besides all the skills that leaders have to have, I think your give a darn meter has to work. That's what I really think. And what happens is that people know if they're cared about, if you're looking after their goodwill, if you're looking after their well-being, or if they're just a cog in your machine. And it's not hard to do. You can still have high profits, high retention of employees, um, high uh, productivity and efficiency. But if your employees feel that you have a give-a-darn meter and you care about them, my God, they'll walk over broken glass for you. Mm. There's so much that can actually happen. And so many leaders are really smart people. They're good at math. They're good at crunching numbers. They're good at doing the analysis or the manufacturing or pulling it through. And it's all left-brain stuff. They forget the right-brain stuff that people really, like we joke about HR, human resources. It's because it really is human resources. Mm-hmm. And retaining employees is so critical for the advancement. And people don't think about it. And what's the one thing that can destroy an organization more than anything? Conflict. People don't know how to handle it. you know. And I like to use this analogy. We've all dropped spaghetti sauce on the counter. You take a wet sponge, you wipe it up. It's no big deal. You leave it overnight. You're scraping it off with a spatula. You leave it three or four months and it's old and moldy and nasty. And that, my friends, is conflict. So why don't we wipe it up when it's wet with a sponge? It makes it so easy. We don't know how. We're afraid. We're worried that we're going to make it worse. And we just hope it'll go away. And my friends, one of the things I did on the book, the title is longer than I would have liked, you know, the secret to resolving conflict and diffusing tension, because 100% 100% of conflict, 100% of it starts with tension. And the tension can be her or it can be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't even know. So that's why this stuff is so important. Let's wipe the spaghetti sauce up with a sponge, you know, at the beginning. And I want people to know how to do it. And leaders need to do that. And leaders don't know how to do it. So that's why some of these tricks are simple and easy. And that's what I want good leaders to do. And quite frankly, I want good followers to do that. There's a guy named Ryan Leak, who I really like, and I was on his podcast and he wrote a book on followership. He Mm -hmm. said, because everyone talks about being a good leader, not everyone's a leader and not everyone should be a leader. How do you be a good follower? You know, something to where you are worthy of a good leader. I thought that was a beautiful way of thinking about it too.
0: Yeah. I love that idea that, um, that followership is just as important. Uh, you don't hear it mentioned too often. You don't hear it talked about too often, but I think that's a, that's a great idea to put out there. Hesha in terms of just curious in your work, um, I'm assuming maybe you've seen this, but have there been instances where you've had difficult leaders to work with, but that ended up coming around? I mean, Did you see, you must have seen so many evolutions in the leaders that you've worked with.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, a good leader has to be flexible. And again, I use introvert and extrovert as the example, just because it's so easy and it's so simple. A good leader knows the ears they're speaking into. They don't treat everyone the same. They don't talk to everybody the same. And they are able to make you feel seen and heard it's not hard. You don't need a big skill class to be able to do that. You know, it's just being aware of your impact, speaking into the ears that are hearing you. You know, one of the things I used to, you know, tell my kids when they were growing up, the difference between intent and impact. Intent only matters really if you're looking for blame or in a criminal case. Otherwise, your intent's irrelevant. It's the impact on me. You knock over my my coffee cup and everything spills. Well, I didn't mean to. I didn't, that's not fixing the cup or getting the stain out of my clothes. And what we do is we focus on intent. And that honestly is pretty much 90% irrelevant. It's impact. And if you focus on impact, your people will love you. They will absolutely turn around and love you.
0: Thank you for that breakdown. Now, why don't we hop into your book, Hesha? How did you... You gave us background on yourself. I read your bio. You filled in the gaps of just education and how you jumped from one practice uh, or field that you wanted to cover to the next. How did the 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 book come up? Uh, come come uh, to be? Was it um, was there something that triggered the idea for the book? Uh, so many authors have these ideas kind of percolating in their minds, but then something comes along that really pushes them off the edge to take that jump into a book. What's the story of your book? If you could just go into that.
1: Well, I have to give credit to my editor, Steve at uh, Barrett Kohler publishing. I wanted to write this book and it was going to be about how to negotiate better, how to resolve conflict better, simple tools and how to do this. And when we were talking about it, he said to me, why are you good at what you do? And I, I did a bunch of words and he goes, no, 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 no. Why are you good at what you do? And, He did. I did more words. And he said to me, I want you to go home and I want you to think about it and be able to give it to me in one or two words, one or two sentences. And I really had to think about it. And I realized that what I do is I hold the calm. That's what I do for people. And he said, that's the book. That's what people need. Because never in the history of calming down has anyone ever calmed down by being told to calm down never and the reason for that comes from a place in neuroscience where if you're upset and i say to you calm down calm down if you're upset you are already feeling powerless the amygdala which is the fear and negativity center of the brain is already firing Mm -hmm. you're feeling powerless so what i'm going to do is take power and go i'm going to tell you what to do because clearly you're out of control and don't know how to do it so i'm going to tell you to calm down or i'm going to tell you to take a deep breath all that does to the amygdala is go Wow. even worse so what someone really needs is for you to hold the calm for them that lets them calm down and you do it for yourself when your amygdala gets triggered i literally will say to myself i'm holding the calm i'm holding the calm i'm holding the calm it takes 2 seconds and it says to my amygdala you've got options you've got choices you are not powerless powerlessness leads to all kinds of bad and terrible things. So the first thing to do is to get some kind of power. And that's why one of the things I do when I'm mediating is I give people power. Even if it's small, what issue should we discuss first? Where do you want to sit? When should we break for lunch? What music should we listen to? How should we handle this? It doesn't really matter what it is. If you give people power, their amygdala can calm down, And now the prefrontal cortex that's underneath the forehead Mm -hmm. can engage and we can discuss. And so I wanted to get this out to people in an easy way of little tips and tricks to do today. And that was really my intent. And, you know, we we can't, no one's civil anymore. You know, I try, John, you espouse something. I try one thing, it doesn't work. You're an idiot, boom. Mm -hmm done like there's no continuing on and that's just really sad you know really sad and and doesn't need to be doesn't need to be
0: asha quick tangent before we go into kind of your overview of the book because that's my next question what do you think has to change in society how far back do we have to go in education where is it that the seed needs to be planted in your opinion to get um, society to the point where, when they're professionals, not everything's going to be kumbaya and perfect. We know that, but that we can kind of reverse what what, what society in our country has been like the last, you know, seven eight years. Where do you think that needs to start? Um, have you thought about that? Have you worked in that area? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I have thought about it a lot, and I I have a chapter in the book called "Creating Small Winnable Victories." Things like that don't happen with big epochs and big proclamations. They're all small, winnable victories. So if leaders start talking about responsibility as opposed to rights, what with happened in our society is we are only talking about rights, but we don't talk about responsibility anymore. And those two things have to go hand in hand. So if that happens from leaders to employees, from teachers to students, from parents to children, from HOA associations to the communities they have, if that can start becoming part of the conversation, yes, you're right. And what are your responsibilities? Hmm. What, what do you give back? What happens? It's sort of the President Kennedy, you know, what, don't ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country thing. That's really what we've lost, and I think that that one thing has contaminated everything. Everything, and if that one thing could be solved, it would be magnificent. And I I mean, I, my, my personal thing that I would do if I were, you know, queen of the world, you know, or president of the United States or, you know, a majority leader in, in Congress is I think we need to have uh, service. I'm a big, big believer that every single 18 year old in this country should do service to their country. It can be in the military, it can be in national parks, It can be an inner city schools. It can be environmental cleanup. I don't care what it is, but this country is free and nobody pays for that freedom except for our military. And they're too small a percentage and they're not really given their due the way they should be. And so if every single 18 year old had to contribute, I think our society would be totally different now. Of course, that's wanting chocolate cake not to be fattening. That's (laughs) Big thing that would have to have both parties would have to come together. There'd be some cataclysmic something, but it would work. And if, until we can get to that, if we just have all leaders of any kind start talking about responsibility, mm-hmm. I think it'll yeah. start a conversation. I really do.
0: No, I think that's a great idea. Um, it's funny. It reminds me of something I saw on LinkedIn. Somebody posted a video, Uh, it was in an Asian culture. It was maybe kids that were maybe kindergartners, first graders. And it was kind of, um, there was like two rows of chairs and it was set up. You could tell like it was like a bus or something that they were, they were mimicking a bus. And there were some students that were playing passengers and then somebody would step on the bus. So they'd step between the chairs and one was, um, one was pretending to be an old person and another person was pretending that another child, like their own classmates, another one was pretending to be a pregnant woman, or it was somebody that needed some kind of help or service. And it was to kind of demonstrate that they were, these kids were standing up and giving their chair to the pregnant woman or to the elderly, whoever it may be. So it's just, it's amazing to incorporate that kind of, like okay. you said, responsibility, it's not just the right, but infusing it that young that, you know, you should be of service to your fellow human being. I love it. Um, I don't know where that split happens, where we, we you know, it depends on where we grow up, the family we grow up in, but where you're not, you don't have to be um, responsible or you don't have to look out for the rights or the safety or the the well-being of, of your fellow human beings in your community. It's... Um, I think it it is a different time now, but I I love that idea of right versus responsibility. Like, yeah, you have the right, you have the freedom, but what are you going to pay into it uh, of service specifically? I think that sets the tone for you learn if these kids learn it that young, even at 18. Yeah. The trajectory into their career, into their relationships is just something completely different than what we've seen so far.
1: I agree with you. Totally, totally. And, you know, again, I'm a I'm a pragmatist so i like the big stuff but small winnable victories that's how things actually get done that's how laws are passed that's how sausage is made i mean that's how it is really done and so kudos to those people for doing that and teaching those children and you know freedom is wonderful but it has to go hand in hand with responsibility and we have that that's the that's what's happening in our society right now so anyone who's hearing this who who grooves on that and thinks that's good, start implementing that in your own life, in your own family, in your own workplace, in your own environment. You know, we used to have uh, knitting clubs and book clubs and koanas and Rotaries and JC's and churches and mosques and synagogues, and we had more communal stuff. The communal stuff has really dissipated because when you're part of a community, if I act like an idiot or if I'm selfish, you're not going to accept me. I'm not going to belong. So there's a certain governor on behavior where it either comes altruistically because I want to do it or because I have fear of loss that I'm going to be rejected. Either way, you get the behavior you want. We've lost that through social media and internet and all the other things. So the only way I know to really start working on that is in my sphere of influence. This is what I'm doing. And your sphere of influence, John, look what you're doing. Everyone who listens to this, you don't have to do a big, you don't have to change the world. Pick your sphere of influence and start talking like this and acting like this. And literally high tide raises all ships. That's what starts to happen.
0: Yeah. I love how you stress small wins because I think everybody, you know, I'm, I'm, um, overgeneralizing, but it's almost like people sit on the sidelines because they don't think that they can contribute because they can't contribute something massive, life-changing, life-altering. But it's those little gestures, those little things that they can do, small ripple effects, like you're giving examples of that would just set the pace. It would set the tone for, for relationships, for helping their community. Uh, but I think people are just so tentative because they feel they can't make a difference. I think Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just one of those things, again, going back to how were you taught to serve? You know, when is it really put into our minds? Right. We're, we're told when we are in school, you know, if you want to go to college, you should have ex- extracurriculars. Um, so go out and do stuff, whether it's sports or go volunteer or show you have a job. But it's to get to college instead of kind of these are the things that make you wholesome these are the things that make you a well-rounded person but it was always to get to that next goal of college or whatever it may be but no these are the things that you know make you human make you a part of a greater community
1: well all the big schools and all the psychology departments have done tons of studies on how do you be happy and what are the happiest people hands down in everyone a hundred percent of the time the happiest people are people are part of a community where they contribute. It's as simple as that. It's not what you get. It's what you give that creates happiness. I mean, we have people that are just, you know, we are wealthy beyond measure in this country. If you look at all of human civilization, and if you look at this world, and yet 25% of our population is on antidepressants. People self-medicate with marijuana and alcohol and other drugs or sex or shopping or, you know, crazy social media stuff. We are the unhappiest, sickest society, and yet we are wealthy and free. Mm-hmm. And I am, I swear to God, to everybody, if you don't want to read all the studies like I've read them, if you want to be happy, give, volunteer, contribute. It changes everything. When I see people that are lonely or depressed, I say, you know what you could do? Work for one of those literacy programs where some, you know, per, some immigrant or some person who never learned to read needs someone to sit next to them and help them read. And then what happens is that Juan Carlos is really upset when you don't show up on Wednesday. So somebody cares about you. You matter to somebody. As human beings, we need to matter. And what's happened in our society is we become a throwaway culture and trash with fast fashion, you know, fast thinking, all the junk, and then humans become trash and now with ai and robots and all those you've got a lot of people thinking they're going to be discarded so yeah. you have to find ways that you matter to others that that is what makes a healthy life and that happens in every study ever done everywhere in the world yeah. i'm not saying anything revelatory really
0: yeah Hesha, can you provide an overview, a general overview of of your book to kind of give people a sense of that path that you're taking your reader on?
1: Sure. So the book is designed with um, 20 chapters with 20 tools. Each one has stories, anecdotes, sentence stems, ways that you can implement it. I really thought that there'd be three or four fan favorites. And what's turned out is I get letters all the time saying it's changed my life or I did this or I did that and how it impacted them. Everybody has their own thing that they like better, which really proves my thesis. Every single person is the same, and every single person likes a different flavor of ice cream. So why would I give you chocolate when you're a vanilla person? It's so easy to look at you and figure out, oh, you're vanilla. Okay, that's what you will like. Oh, you want sherbet. Okay, it's not hard. So I wrote the book that way, and then what I also did is initially I had people telling me they wanted me to write a workbook to go with it because you get a second book. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I did a free discussion guide in the back of the book and it tracks the book so that any group or organization can buy, you know, 10 books or a thousand books, doesn't matter, for their group. And then you have someone lead small little groups, you go through the questions and you discuss it with each other. Because what will happen is someone in the group will say, oh, that was stupid, that was ridiculous. And someone else will say, Oh, that was very meaningful to me. Really? Why? Now all of a sudden you understand each other. It's team building without having to go to a theme park or a zip line or some of that external nonsense stuff. It's team building where you get to know each other and understand each other by asking simple, few little questions and easy things. And like one of the things I like to you know, give our listeners is I like to do the advanced course. Let's say you know, you're know you dealing with somebody hateful, really horrible, like you feel powerless, you are angry, you feel oppressed, I mean, it's really bad. So the first thing obviously is get away if you can. But let's mm-hmm. say you can't, it's your landlord, it's your boss, it's your brother-in-law, like you're stuck, right? So you've got to change your paradigm. One question helps you do it. You look at the person and you say to yourself, would this person, pull my kid out of a burning car. 95% of the time, the answer to that is yes. Okay, there's something redeeming about him or her, right? Now I look through that filter. Neuroscientists have proven that we have something called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. If I think you're an idiot, I have a filter, everything you say is idiotic. If I think you're mean, evil, selfish, narcissistic, sociopathic, whatever labels we tend to dump on people, that's the filter through which I'll see everything. Okay, that's a choice, but if I have to deal with you, I'm just making myself miserable. I have to see another side of you. I have to call forth that other side of you. That's one of the tricks on having to do that. Now, does it make chocolate cake not fattening? No, right, no, but does it make it bearable that you can deal with it? And that's what I wanted to do with the book is it is practical advice that you can use today. In any situation, you happen to have to either prevent it, wipe the spaghetti sauce up and it's wet, mm-hmm. or if it's old and moldy and gross and you got to deal with it, ways to deal with it.
0: Well, that's like the 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 thing I mentioned a couple of minutes ago about people not taking steps in, in anything or doing anything because they they don't think they can make a huge impact. You know, it's like just get started. Um, even putting yourself in the mindset, it's this isn't going to perfect your life. It's not going to take out all conflict of your life. It's not going to make you know kumbaya moments all throughout your day and week, but just get into that mindset of reading this type of material, studying these kinds of lessons, going out there and practicing. I mean, I'm assuming that there are things in your book where you can practice on a daily basis because if you think about all the people we communicate on a daily basis, even if you're not having a conflict with somebody, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there are tips in your book for just how to manage conversations.
1: Yes, indeed. And so I will tell people validation is the WD-40 of our universe. Okay. It's the Vaseline on the tracks of anything. So again, the easy stuff, of course, I always want to do with the hard stuff. Let's say I'm in a meeting and you're a blowhard and you won't stop talking or saying stupid things or taking credit for my ideas or, or, or fill in the blank. How do I stop you? This is a surefire way that works every single time. You know, John, you know what I admire about you? You stop talking. You don't say another word. You are moi, (laughs) what? I wanna hear what you have to say, not another word. Yeah. now in that interaction around that conference table or the family table or the school room, who's got the power in that interaction? You. Now I say something. It has to be true and authentic. I admire your passion, your commitment, your responsibility, your dedication, your attempt to see both sides of an issue, even though they haven't, because now they have to because you set them up that way. (laughs) And use whatever verb you want. You know what I admire about you. You know what I like about you. You know what I respect about you. In a family situation, you know what I love about you. If I'm having a conflict with my husband and we see things differently, we don't really even have him anymore because the first thing I will say to him is, you know what I love about you? He just melts. Who's gonna fight with somebody who says to them, you know what I love about you in the midst of something? And then things get resolved. Same thing with your boss. You know what I admire about you, boss? Your strength, your commitment, your authenticity, your desire to get it right. Whatever is important to that person, mm-hmm. you change the entire interaction in that instant. And now that person looks at you as friend and not foe. And guess what? We do we do deals with our friends, not with our yeah. foes. That's how it works. Just that's one little simple piece of the 9 million things I've got in this book that you play with, and then it just becomes a part of your life. And no one's going to say to you, Oh my goodness, John, you're so good. You hold the calm. What they're going to say is, wow, you just, people listen to you.
0: Wow.
1: You just get along or wow. You just avoid, you know, conflict. How do you do that? They're just going to see fluidity as you move through.
0: Yeah. What's interesting is, you know, you're kind of, you're brought up to be nice to people, be respectful to people, say, thank you, say, please. Um, and in the workplace, everybody does that for the most part. And you know, good job. I uh, I recommended you for this because I think you're you're good at this. You know, this is your forte. Thank you so much, please. But very rarely do you hear those kind of things where it's like, okay, pause. I'm looking at you, and here are some things about you. Yeah. I'm not just thanking you for something you did for me or asking you to do something for me. We're not we, we're not in a rush to go anywhere. Nothing is due, but I'm going to take the moment even between things and just pause. And I found myself doing that more during the pandemic just because I think it was like missing people. So when I finally started getting back around to people, now I'm just, it's just easy. I get in the habit of just kind of pausing and just saying something like that to people, um, you know, not staring <laughs> into their eyes or anything like that. But I think. no, no. no, no. I- I think it stems and not that you were saying that you should do it that way but I think it stems from the fact that like with the pandemic we all went home March 2020 and yep. didn't see people for a while you don't know when that's going to happen so if you've learned those lessons yep. when you get that opportunity to be around great people it's like I want I want them to know And I think that's a major reason for me having this podcast is I want these people, I want my guests, I want you, my authors, non-authors to know like what you're, that what you're doing is I want, whatever you're doing, I want to learn about, I want to support you in any way I can and get your message out there. There's just so much value, like you said, in giving, but especially not in passing, but really taking that initiative in that moment and making that, that real effort, authentic effort. To, to just show somebody, to hold up a mirror and say, you know, there are moments to use it with people that won't shut the hell up, Hesha, absolutely. But even just taking that moment whenever you can to hold up a mirror just so someone feels seen and again, validated is powerful.
1: It, it is. We, well, first of all, we appreciate as authors, we appreciate what you're doing, John, because that helps get the message out there. And the beautiful thing about that is it works with just making people feel good about themselves. It works with dealing with difficult people. And what it also works with is you have no idea the struggle somebody else is going through. You have no idea. When I do a big speech, I always say, How many people feel fully, completely validated and appreciated in their lives? Show of hands. And you get like, you know, 10%, right? We all feel isolated, unappreciated, unvalued, unseen. It's just part of the human condition. So um, if anyone's listening here and you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's really where I do most of my, my stuff. Um, I have a Facebook page also, but mainly it's LinkedIn. And I've been posting two or three things a week and little challenges and little ways to practice this. And a couple of weeks ago, I posted a validation challenge and I've had a lot of people just marvel at it. So, and anyone listening and you wanna take this challenge, all you do is you make sure that you validate two random strangers every single day. Has to be random has to be strangers, so you don't get anything from it. It's not my employee or my neighbor or my kid or my boss. It's random strangers, which means you have to stop. you got to look at somebody. you got to notice something about them. So something as simple as you're in a store and you're in the checkout line with someone and you turn around and you see this person and they smile and just go, my, what a wonderful smile you have. That just made me happy. You made that person's day. How about somebody at the checkout girl who doesn't look at you, but she's, you can say, you know what, my goodness, you play that thing like a violin. You're so efficient. She will melt in front of you. You have no idea the level of misery people are going through in their lives. If you do that, first of all, what you get is way more than what you give. I'm telling you, the whole, anything, everything will shift around you. People will look at you and Thank you. And what a great day you gave me. You'll get goosebumps. It will lift you up. It's, it's a remarkable thing. And I tell you, I, I practice what I preach. I do that. I mean, I do it all the time. I mean like all the time and it comes back to me in way more than I give out.
0: Yeah. I grin only cause I picked that up from my dad. My dad was a type where oh. if we're like waiting in line at a restaurant and you know, he would just go up and talk to anybody or just say hi or come. So I've picked that up from him and it is amazing when you do do it and you can tell that people aren't used to it because they're kind of caught off guard, but then they crack a smile, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, whether it is a grocery store, whether it is at Starbucks, whatever it may be. Even my favorite is like, if you're both going through something like waiting too long or you see something happen in front of you and you comment to each other and just laugh yeah, just something like that is just incredible. But if you throw people that you don't know a compliment, it's amazing how sometimes they they don't know what to do with that.
1: Yeah, because because there's always
0: there's always okay. Why are you saying that? What else? Do, and it's just like no, just throwing out the compliment or, or whatever it may be. I love those moments because they're just like these little ripple effects of just putting things in motion. Um, Micro interactions is what one of my other authors had, had spoken about. Just the power of those. One of those changed his life. I love was,
1: it, micro was, interaction. That's great.
0: It might, I, I got to go back and check the words, but it was something like that Where it was like micro. It changed his life where he wasn't sure about something. He was racing in the airport to catch a plane, to go to a speaking engagement. And somebody commented on his hustle and it just made him smile. And it just changed his attitude for that entire trip. Like little things like that.
1: You can have let's why back to what you said, how people don't want to do anything because they think they can't do something big. You have no idea. You do one small thing, and that other person does something small, and then the other person does some great thing. Or you did something small that affected a person and they decided to stop drinking and maybe stop hitting their kid. You really have no idea the ripple effect. And so you know Albert Einstein said, there's only two ways to live in the world. as if nothing is magic. And as if everything is magic i choose to live as everything is magic the glass is always half full for me no matter what i have to deal with and i've had plenty of garbage in my life right? i told mm-hmm. you i was raised very difficultly um, and thank god for a lot of therapy to help me you know g- uh, survive all that is as much as i can do to raise things up i get raised up too and it makes our society better our place better everything we're doing so everyone listening You can do, you are a powerful, glorious being that can listen. You can hear this. You can read books. You can see. You know, you can walk. You can speak. Whatever it is that you can do is glorious and to be celebrated. It's just a better way of living life, and life will be richer and happier as a result. I promise. I promise.
0: Asha, in wrapping up, is there anything that you, and thank you so much for everything you shared about the book. I love that you went into some of the examples from your career, but at the same time, just speaking about being human. You know what I mean? It's it's so basic. So much of what I've incorporated into my writing or posting on social media is just like, and it, because of the pandemic, you, you see the need for it more than ever. Just being human. And how much of the bullshit in life we could avoid for ourselves, for others, if we just be human and you're not giving away the store. It's not a zero sum game. Like you said, if you give, you will get back in some, in some, cause it's not a selfish thing, but it it pays to feel good. Like that sensation you get about doing your part and just being a great human being. So I, I thank you so much for connecting all those pieces.
1: And I also want to, you know, I'm not Pollyanna. There are people that are really negative and toxic and you need to have strong boundaries against them. Okay, you should do that. There's nothing wrong with that. So anyway, I'd love for people to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a webpage, holdingthecalm.com. And if you sign up, I don't sell the mailing list or anything like that, but I send out little tidbits and stuff all the time to folks. I have little one minute videos and when I think of cool things or how to deal with current issues, you know, how to handle stuff like that right now. Uh, And if you get the book, if you'd be kind enough to go online to Amazon and leave a review that helps the search algorithm. Um, And uh, I'd love to hear from people and their experiences of these things, because it helps keep my energy up out there thumping (laughs) the grasses because I have to do that too. You know, life is, and I, you know, I tell, I'm honest, life is a jungle. There's nice watering holes and there's dangerous watering holes. Right. So how can you craft your life to be around a nice waterfall and protect yourself? Because there are predators, there are sociopaths, there are crazy people, there are difficult things, but it's not the majority. We think of it as the majority, but it's not. So how to cage that and make the rest of your life rich and beautiful. Yes. Yes. Hold the calm. Yes.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I love that message just that, you know, we're not being Pollyannas. It's not all perfect. Um, and there is a time and place to kind of just cut things off. But um, I, I love the overall message of this is, is you sharing to people that they have more control than, than they know. They have more power than they know. So thank you for your time. Hesh. I appreciate it so much.
1: My pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for interviewing me and everyone for listening.
0: And again, Hesha's book is Holding the Calm, The Secret to Resolving Conflict and Diffusing Tension. Uh, I really appreciate her time with me. If there's anything that I might've missed, we're limited on time, please reach out, let me know. I'll share all of Hesha's social media. We're connected on LinkedIn. If you have any questions, let me know, reach out. I'll reach out to her, see if I can get some feedback or additional wisdom from her. In the meantime, thank you for watching and listening and I'll talk to you soon. Take care, bye.